Well, hello and welcome along to Church Online once again. My name's Brendan McLaughlin and I'm one of the senior minister here at Earlwood Anglican. And today uh, we're looking at the topic of perseverance. As the saying goes, if at first you don't succeed, try doing it the way your wife told you to the first time. No, wait, that's not it. Uh, what is it? Try, try again. Uh, like take vacuuming, for example. So when I come across something uh, uh, that I'm vacuuming that the vacuum is not picking up, I like to give the vacuum at least three or four goes at it. Now, if it still doesn't pick it up, then, then I'll pick it up. And what I do is I look at it and then I put it back just to give the vacuum another go. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Well, the kind of perseverance we're looking at today is a little more significant than vacuuming. Uh, it is looking at persevering in the Christian life. Now, as our regulars will know, we've been looking at Hebrews chapters 1 to 10 across term 3 this, uh, this year. I'm hoping uh, we might be able to come back to the rest of the book of Hebrews next year. But uh, for the past 10 weeks, the author has been outlining for us the supreme glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, interspersed uh, between these glorious descriptions have been some very brief commands, right? Just one liners. Uh, so if you recall, you know, pay the most most careful attention, Hebrews 2.1. Uh, fix your thoughts, Hebrews 3.1. Make every effort, Hebrews 4.11. Our passage today has the first extended section of application in the book so far. And so here's my question, right? So if you had just spent 10 whole chapters outlining some 10 different ways in which Jesus is supremely glorious, all right, what would your first big piece of application be? What would be uh, the, the first thing you would command your readers to do? Well, in the second half of Hebrews chapter 10, the author exhorts us to draw near to God, to hold on to God, and to help others do the same. Or in layman's terms, he's saying we need to persevere as a church. And that's our message for today. We need to persevere as a church. Uh, it's basically the summary of all the brief commands we've had up until this point. But here's the beauty of today's passage, is the author is not telling us to keep going uh, in our own strength, even if we've got nothing left in the tank. See, what he's saying is, Jesus is the fuel for our perseverance. And if we stick with Jesus, he will push us to the end. All right, and I've got four points today to help us see uh, that Jesus is the fuel for perseverance. So our first point uh, pretty much covers the first half of Hebrews chapter 10, that's verses 1 to 18, in which this is sort of the author's final argument uh, for his readers to not return to Judaism. So I've titled our first point, The Grounds of Perseverance, why this is, uh, this is happening. The author then gives us the application for our passage today. That's in verses 19 to 25, and I've titled that The Path to Perseverance. Our third point is a very stern warning, a very terrifying warning against not sticking with Jesus, which I've titled The Need for Perseverance. That's verses 26 to 35. But our passage concludes with the author reminding us of the Christian gospel. And that is uh, that... Uh, perseverance is from Jesus. It's not from us. 
And so our final point is titled, The Grace Behind Perseverance. And my prayer for today is that we will firstly see the importance of perseverance in the Christian life, but secondly, how that is accomplished. So come with me as we look at the grounds of perseverance, the path to perseverance, the need for perseverance, and the grace behind perseverance. And our passage begins with these words, Hebrews 10 verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Um, well, yeah, to worship. And so this is the author's sort of, it's his final summary of his argument so far in the letter. And that is that the Old Testament was only ever a shadow, a model, a teaser trailer, if you will, of the real thing that came with Jesus. Uh, Simon Manchester puts it this way. He says, look, if we, imagine we had a time machine and we could go back and witness that great Old Testament act of salvation in the Exodus. And then if we could then go forward in time and witness that great New Testament act of salvation, that being the cross, all right, uh, what would happen was our eyes could make us believe uh, that the parting of the Red Sea was the big event and the death of this one man was, was the small event. But what our eyes fail to see is that the parting of the Red Sea simply got people across a body of water. Jesus' death got you and me across eternity. Now, he's already shown us, we saw this five weeks ago, that the Old Testament priesthood needed replacing. Now, how do we know that? It's because the Old Testament itself told us it needed replacing in Psalm 110. And then two weeks ago, we saw that the Old Covenant itself needed replacing. How do we know that the Old Covenant needed replacing? Because the Old Testament told us it needed replacing, Jeremiah 31. The author now says the Old Testament sacrifices needed replacing. Why? Well, verse 4 is they were actually not. Uh, now, verse 4 is supposed to begin with the word for, all right? And it says, uh, because it is impossible, or for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And how do we know this? Because the Old Testament told us. All right, so this time he's quoting from Psalm 140. Read verses 5 and 6 for me. Uh, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, This is Psalm 140, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. All right, so understand this God did not want the Old Testament sacrifices. He wasn't sitting up in heaven going, oh, goody, they've killed some more animals. You see, the reason he commanded the sacrifices to be offered was to remind the people of their sin. We see this in verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. And it's also to point the people to the final solution. Think of it this way. Uh, This here is a a 3D model, it's like a a, a, a 3D print of a wheel that I actually helped design and develop when I worked at Toyota. 
Now, the purpose of this model is to show us how the wheel will look in its final form. But here's the thing. If we were to put this on a car, it would break into pieces before we even pulled the car jack out. All right? A plastic wheel is not able to bear the weight of a car. So too were animal sacrifices not able to bear the weight of people's sins. Right? The Old Testament sacrifices were there to prepare God's people for the final solution, that being Jesus. Read verse 12 with me. Uh, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, now, why did Jesus sit down? Because his sacrifice was it. It was done. His job was over. It was done perfectly. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, uh, perfection there does not mean sinless, right? Because uh, we're still being made holy. As you can see there, that is a, a continuous process, this side of heaven. What it means is we're forgiven. Verse 17. Uh, over the page for me. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where there have been forgiven, uh, where there, these have been forgiven, uh, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Right, friends, the Old Testament was a shadow of the one who would actually accomplish forgiveness, Jesus. So, given that Jesus' death means all the sins we've ever committed and all the sins we ever will commit are forgiven, what should we do? Right? What is the first command that the author gives? Well, he gives it in four parts. <coughs> and part one, <coughs> excuse me, is in verse 22. Let us, <coughs> excuse me. Went down the wrong way. Uh, let us draw near to God. Right? If Jesus is the most glorious being in existence, then let's build the most intimate, satisfying and fulfilling relationship with him that we can. So how important is this to us <coughs> to, 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 to build a deep and intimate relationship with God? Well, you can often tell how important things are to people, by how much they talk about it. Do you want to know what evangelical ministers talk about when we get together? Uh, we talk about theology, who's got the best theology, you or me. We talk about how successful our church looks, all right, how our church is growing, and we talk about all the things we're doing for Christ. Do you know what the Puritans back in the 1600s talked about? They talked about their daily experience with God and how that was going. Uh, Puritan John Owen said that communion with God comes through regular visits. That's what he talked about. Now, these regular visits are not just for asking for things. All right? Can you imagine a friend who only stops by when they need money? Not much of a visit, is it? All right. To build an intimate and fulfilling relationship with God, according to John Owen, it comes through deep thought about God's glory or what he calls assiduous, diligent meditation and relentless prayer. 
And so the author's first command here is to meditate diligently and pray continuously. That's what it means to draw near to God, to build that relationship. All right, his second command is in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, we're going to say more about this in our third and our fourth points. But if Jesus is supremely glorious, then walking away from Jesus is like winning an Oscar or winning a gold medal, Olympic gold, and then just throwing it away. It's like, it's like inheriting a castle in the south of France and then just letting it rot. Right? Hold on to God. Commandment number three is in verse 24. <clears throat> Let us consider how we, must, we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, I pulled out my big Greek lexicon this week uh, to look at this word spur on. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult word. So the first entry is to stir up or provoke. All right? But the second entry is to irritate or to have a sharp argument or disagreement. So what the author is saying here is we need to have people around us who will keep us accountable, who will challenge us, who will even confront us when we're straying from the path. Many years ago, I brought up the topic of church attendance with a parishioner because they would routinely miss church about once a month. And when I asked him about it, he became deeply defensive and upset. Now, two weeks later, and I'm not exaggerating by this, two weeks later, he told me he was leaving this church that I was at to go to a church down the road. Now, maybe I could have been a bit more tactful that's always a possibility. But friends, if we do not have people around us who we are willing to be confronted by, to be challenged by uh, on our behaviour, then we will not grow. Right? We're dead in the water. Commandment number four is in verse 25. <clears throat> uh, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Now, this verse has been used by some uh, in recent days to, to tell the church that we should be ignoring the lockdown and just meeting back together uh, as a church. But here's the thing. The context here is not standing up to persecution. Right? It's not saying, well, the, the government's telling us this, so let's stand up to them. Right? Persecution comes a little later in the passage. Uh, the context here is love and good deeds. Verse 24. Right? Now, friends, the government has closed church services in our area, uh, but it, they haven't done so in, in a bid to destroy the church. Right? They've actually closed church services along with pretty much everything else to protect people from getting COVID and dying. And that's why we're not meeting together at the moment. Right? Now, if the, if the government ever does try to destroy the church, then we will be secretly meeting in my house. Okay? Uh, but until then, we are going to follow the government's regulations to love other people. Now, the reason we meet together, according to this verse, is to encourage one another. The Greek word is parakalo. Uh, it literally means to call alongside a person. And so this is actually the opposite of irritating people. We are supposed to irritate people uh, at appropriate times, but at other times, people just need you to walk beside them. 
to call alongside them, to encourage them. Tell them you can do it. And that's what church is supposed to look like. All right? Now, there are some churches out there that are very good at confronting, very good at laying down the law, but maybe not so good at encouraging. While there are other churches out there uh, that are great at encouraging, they'll encourage you to do anything and everything, but they won't pull you up if you steer off the path. All right? The author says we need both to stay on the path. And grow, all right? So draw near to God, hold on to God, and encourage others to do the same. Then in verse 26, the author tells us why perseverance is so important. Now, once again, the NIV leaves out a very important word, okay? Verse 26 is supposed to begin with the word for, all right? This is the author's explanation for his exhortation. Uh, so read it with me. Verse 26, for if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. All right, so the reason we need to persevere in the Christian faith is because the alternative is facing God's judgment. Now friends, please do not ignore the Bible's teaching on God's wrath. Right, some Christians today, they prefer uh, to speak only of God's grace, thinking, oh, well, that's, that's the motivation people need. Now, the book of Hebrews is full of teaching on God's grace. But it also has two of the most terrifying warnings in all of the scriptures. Right? Our author will not let us ignore God's judgment. Now, one of the reasons he won't let us ignore it is because people who ignore God's judgment end up with a very skewed, a very unbiblical view of sin. These are the people who will often ask questions like, oh, look, what possible sin could make God's judgments righteous? The more pointed question is, because God's judgments are righteous, how serious must our sin be? Or more to the point, how blind must we be to our own immorality that we would even ask such a question in the first place? Right? God's judgment is real. And who is that judgment directed against in this passage? Well, upon first reading, it seems to be Christians. Right? So in verse 29, we're told it is those who have been sanctified and those who have interacted with the spirits. Right? That's, that's Christians, isn't it? That's people in the church. But like we've said before, it actually just depends on what kind of a Christian you are. You see, every church is made up of true believers... And nominal believers, right? Uh, Christians who have given their lives to Jesus and Christians who are Christian in name only. And the author's warning here is for nominal Christians, right? Churchgoers who don't actually trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And we see this in verse 26, all right? So the Greek word there for keep on sinning is, in the, is, is a present active participle. Now, what that means is it is suggesting an ongoing action, a continuous action, all right? There's no stopping and repenting and trying to do better for these people like true disciples of Jesus will do. These people just deliberately, willfully continue in their sin, 
Furthermore, verse 27 calls them enemies of God. That's not a, that's not a, a description of Christians. And verse 29 says they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. All right? Anyone who has truly humbled themselves to receive Jesus' forgiveness is not just going to turn around and tread on Jesus. So this warning is for pew warmers, which every church has. And the warning is this. There are only two options when it comes to God. Right? Door number one is sacrifice for sin, verse 26. Door number two is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, verse 27. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Right? God is angry at sin. Verse 31 is probably the most chilling verse in the entire Bible. What does it say? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God has made a provision for that anger. And it's so simple to do. Right? It doesn't require elaborate religious ceremonies or meeting some impossibly high moral bar. It requires saying sorry for our sin and accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Well, finally, we need both aspects of the gospel, judgment and salvation, because it is both aspects of the gospel that actually help us persevere to the end, stick with Jesus to the end. Uh, what I mean is this. You see, if you ignore God's judgment... If you choose not to think of a God of wrath, then the gospel will not change you and will not help you persevere. Let me explain it this way. Imagine you're standing on a train platform with a friend, okay? And as the train's coming in, the friend says to you, let me show you how much I care for you and love you. And then jumps in front of the train and is killed. Now, does that make any sense whatsoever? Of course not. But friends, that's the gospel without God's judgment. Right? It is a God who might have died for us, but for no reason. And friends, a crazy gospel will not change us or sustain us. Right? Thankfully, that's not the gospel according to the Bible. Right, so imagine a second scenario when you or I are actually standing on the train tracks with headphones on uh, and so we can't actually hear the train speeding towards us from behind. But a friend sees us at the last minute and jumps in to push us out of the way but get hit, gets hit themselves and killed. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The freight train of sin was barreling down upon us. And so Jesus jumped in to push us out of the way, taking the full force of sin upon himself. And friends, herein lies the fuel for perseverance. All right, the righteous do not live by working hard at perseverance in our own strength. All right, what does the author say? Verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. 
Friends, when we realize the seriousness of that problem called sin and the sacrifice Jesus made to help us escape that judgment, it changes us. Right? Of course we'll draw near to God. Why wouldn't we draw near to the God who has gone to such lengths to draw near to us? Of course we will hold unswervingly to our hope. Why would you throw away a friend who gave their life for you? And of course we will consider how to irritate and encourage one another to do the same. Only the worst of sinners would keep such glorious reward to themselves. Now, friends, statistically speaking, there will be some members of Erwood Anglican who are only nominal Christians. To you, I want to say, please keep coming. All right? You need to persevere, verse 36, in the hope that one day the gospel will sink in. But because I'm only human, I don't actually know who are the real Christians and who are the nominal Christians in our church any more than the author did for his original recipients. And so all I can do is say exactly what this author said to his original recipients. And that is, uh, you need to persevere, verse 36, all right, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. However, we're not trying to do it in our own strength. We are doing it through the gospel of grace. Verse 39. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved.